word. We thank you for this amazing story, this account uh, that we look at over these next few weeks leading up to your crucifixion and your resurrection. And we pray today that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word and speak to us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently heard a story of a family. Let's call this family the Smiths so that you won't know who it is. In fact, you wouldn't know who it was anyway. And if you are a Smith, it's not about you, okay? There was a family called the Smiths. And the parents, whenever they would drop their children off at someone's house to play, they wouldn't just say to the children like we normally do, hey, you know, have fun and be good, okay? They wouldn't say that. Instead, they would say to them something like, have fun and remember you're a Smith. Have fun and remember you're a smith. Now that child understood, whatever child it was in the family, they understood what it meant to be a smith. They understood that that meant you did certain things and you didn't do certain things. It meant that you said certain things and you didn't say certain things. That's what it meant to be a smith. And their parents expected that their identity as a smith would influence their behavior. Their identity would influence their behavior. You know, we live in a world and in an age where people all around us are obsessed with finding their true identity. Whether it's gender identity, career identity, sexual identity, economic identity, there's a question that consumes so much of the world today, and effectively it's this, who am I? Who am I? And maybe you're here this morning with that very question. Who am I? What is my identity? Well, you've come to a good place. Because this morning we're going to look at that exact question. And you've just heard read from the Bible from Clay, I think one of the clearest examples of a man who knew exactly who he was. A man who knew his identity so clearly and his name was Jesus. And in that same story, we've also heard about another man called Peter. And Peter was a very close friend of Jesus, one of his disciples, his followers. And Peter, he was a guy that didn't really understand his identity yet. So you've got Jesus understanding his identity so clearly. And what we're going to see is that out of that clarity of his identity, it influenced his behavior. And then we're going to see Peter, who wasn't so clear about who he was, and we're going to see how that influenced his behavior. And this morning, there's one thing I ask that we would go out of here with. One thing that we would think about as we leave here, and that's this. Your identity influences everything. Your identity influences everything. What Clay's read to us from John chapter 18 comes right after what we had read a few weeks ago in John chapter 17 when we read the story, for those of you who were here, about Jesus in this upper room in Jerusalem, a room that was upstairs, and he met there with his disciples just before he went to the cross. And in that room, he celebrated the Jewish celebration or festival of Passover. We'll talk a little bit about that. But what he did in that room is he prayed for himself of what he was about to go through on the cross. He prayed for his disciples of what they were going to go through when he'd left them. And he also prayed for all of those throughout time who would believe in him. And many of us in, that, in this room today are those people that he prayed for. Isn't that a wonderful thought that he prayed for you and I if we know him? And then at John chapter 18, verse 1, John starts with this. When Jesus had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. You see, the very fact that Jesus left that upper room 
and went, as John said, to this garden called the Garden of Gethsemane, that very fact speaks of the identity of Jesus. How so? Why do I say that? Why do I think this speaks so much about his identity? Well, as I said before, this was the Passover festival for the Jews. This was a time when they remembered many, many years ago how God had brought the Israelites out of Egypt, right? And as part of that remembrance, they would take a little lamb and they would kill this lamb. They would sacrifice this lamb. And it would be a picture, when this lamb died, it would be a picture that that lamb was taking on all the wrong for the person, for the family that had, that had sacrificed that lamb, all of the sin. It was like all of the wrong stuff they had done would be put on this lamb and God would see that sacrifice and acknowledge it so that the person themselves didn't have to give their own lives. And there was this picture in all of these lambs that would die. And on this night, as Jesus had been doing this with his disciples and celebrating the Passover, it was not just another ordinary night. In fact, even as we sang about before, this was going to be the beginning of the darkest night in all of human history when the Son of God would die on the cross. And Jesus knew it. Remember his disciple Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Right in that upper room, we read another account. And in this account, Jesus talked to Judas and he called him out for what he was about to do. And he said to him, what you're about to do, Judas, do it quickly. Because Jesus knew that Judas had planned to hand him over to the Jewish rulers, to hand him over to the Roman soldiers. And Jesus knew what was going to happen to him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet with all of that knowledge, understanding all of that, still he leaves the upper room and he goes. He understood that he was going to die. He could have just stayed hidden in that little room and tried to hide himself, but instead he allowed himself to be captured because he knew who he was. His identity was influencing his behavior. Because of who he was, he left the room and he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Because of who he was, not in spite of. He laid down his life for the world, dying ultimately on the cross. And the amazing thing, as we read in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says this, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Isn't that a wonderful thought? No one takes this life from me, Jesus says. I lay it down of my own accord. The religious leaders thought that they had trapped Jesus. It was kind of like, gotcha, we found out where you've hidden, we've got Judas, he's led us to the garden of Gethsemane, and now we're going to capture you, Jesus. They'd completely missed the point. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to be caught. The picture I have in my mind when I think about this is like when you're playing with a child and you're wrestling with that child. And you let the kid win, right? That's what I do with my girls. I kind of lie on the ground and I let them jump all over me and they pretend that they're winning and all that kind of stuff. They're not winning. I could throw them off if I wanted to. And that's the picture I get here. It's like the Jewish people are like, we've won, we've caught him. And he's like, ah, really? I'm going to let myself be captured here, okay? I'm going to let myself go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then hidden within this one verse is another thing which shows how clear his identity would have been to Jesus himself at this moment. And it's these words here. John tells us Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley. Why did John write that detail? Why didn't he just say Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane? But instead he says Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley and went to the Garden. Why did he say that? 
Well, firstly, it shows the direction he was going, so you can work out what garden he went to. But there's something much deeper going on here. Remember I said there was the the Passover festival. Well, historians tell us that around about that time when the Passover occurred, there would have been close to a million lambs that would have been sacrificed over that day. A million, 250,000. And they were all killed up in the temple. And the temple in Jerusalem was up the Kidron Valley. And you'd come down from the temple, down through the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, can you imagine how much blood was coming out of that temple from all of those lambs being killed? It's a disgusting thought, really, isn't it? And this, you think, wow, that's a lot of lambs, that's a lot of blood. But as they would wash all of that blood out of the temple, what would happen is it would flow down the Kidron Valley, which was normally dry unless there was flood season or unless it was Passover. And I'm not saying there was torrents of blood or anything, but I tell you what, there was enough. And as Jesus leaves the upper room and he walks over to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's walking through this valley and he sees this blood. And maybe even his feet are having to walk and touch that blood as he's walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. And right there for him is an image and a visual reminder of who he was. Because you see, he was going to the Garden of Gethsemane so that he could be arrested He was being arrested so that he could be tried. He was being tried so that he could be crucified as what? The true Passover lamb. And that vivid image is there for him as he goes. And so it is phenomenal that John says he crossed the Kidron Valley, that he saw all of that. He thought about what it meant, and yet he still went. He still went. Because his identity was influencing his behavior. And he knew that as the Son of God, this was what he had to do. In verses 2 to 3, we read that a detachment detachment of soldiers, officials, Pharisees, and Judas arrived to arrest Jesus in the garden. That word detachment or cohort in the Roman army what it usually signified or, 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 relate or referred to was a group of about 600 soldiers. Now, historians that look at this and commentators, they say you could sometimes have a smaller group, maybe down to 200. But what we learn is that somewhere between about 200 and 600 people came to arrest Jesus that night. It's amazing, isn't it? I sort of think of maybe a group of a dozen sort of turn up with their swords But hundreds of people turn up into this garden in the dead of the night with Judas to arrest this unarmed man. And they all come here and these hundreds of people are there. And look at what happens in verse 4. Jesus, again, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? He goes to them because he wants to make sure that they get the right person, right? He was always looking after his disciples. So he goes out, who is it you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, I am he, replies Jesus. Now look what happens, it's really interesting. They, that's the hundreds of people that are there, these mighty soldiers with their weapons, the Jewish rulers, Judas, all that have come to arrest him, they drew back and fell to the ground. And that's a bit strange. When police officers in New Zealand go to arrest someone, I don't see them fall to the ground. But all of these soldiers, they fall to the ground before Jesus. What was going on here? 
We miss it a little bit in the translation. Because you see, the translators have said, who is it you're after? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. They've, they've actually added that word in there, he. Actually, how it should be read is this. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am. Period. And you see, through the book of John, we've had these I am statements about Jesus. And what does it refer to? If you remember right back to when Abraham was speaking to God and he said, God, what is your name? Who are you? And God said, I am. And remember Moses, he said, I am. Tell them I am. It was the name that God gave to himself. I am. And Jesus is saying right here in this moment, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, but I want to tell you who you're actually looking for is God come in the flesh. And at that moment, they all fall on the ground. Did they fall on the ground because Jesus was saying that he was God and this was heresy? No. These are Romans, most of them. They didn't give a rip about whether someone was, was being heretical. They fell to the ground under the power of the very name of God. They couldn't even stand up just at the mention of his name. And yet they think they've caught him. <laughs> And at this stage, you see Peter come into the story and he slashes out with a sword and chops off the ear of one of the guys. And Jesus has to, has to jump in and interrupt Peter and he heals the man's ear. And we read in another, another one of the gospel accounts in Matthew that, Peter, that Jesus says to Peter, Peter, listen, put away your sword. If I wanted to, I could call on 60,000 angels right now to come here. But I don't want to because I know my identity, Peter. And I know what it's calling me to do. Jesus had this phenomenal power within him, didn't he? He was God. At his voice, hundreds fall on the ground. At his voice, he spoke the world into being. And yet at this moment, he allows himself to be captured, to be arrested, and ultimately to die on a cross. Do you know, the Bible describes that as meekness. Meekness. And in this day and age, we think of that word meek and we think it's some nandy-pandy kind of person, right? That's not what meekness is about. The best way to think about meekness is a stallion horse with all the power and the strength that's in that horse. It could break through fences, it can jump fences, it can run races, it can pull things. And yet all of that strength can be controlled by a couple of reins. And you see, true meekness is this. It's strength under control and right at that moment you have Jesus God in the flesh with all of that power all of that strength under control and he controlled it because he knew his identity and his identity influenced his behavior and he had to go to the cross for you and for me how about Peter what was happening to Peter right now well we saw him cut off the air it was like the lashing out of Peter. But you know, earlier in the evening, Mark tells us of an exchange between Peter and Jesus. It tells us of what Jesus said to Peter in warning him of what was going to happen that night. I want to read it to you. Mark 14, 27 to 31. You will all fall away, Jesus told the disciples, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, that's Jesus, and the sheep, the disciples, will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Look at what Peter says. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. 
Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Jesus was trying to warn Peter that a hard time, a very hard time of testing was coming for him. Peter, be ready. Peter, be, be, be aware. Be awake. Because Peter, a time is coming when you're going to be tested. And once Jesus is arrested, all of the disciples flee. But then Peter and John, they must have somehow connected with one another again and they decided, hey, look, let's see if we can follow the arresting party. Let's see if we can see where Jesus goes. We won't get too close, but let's, let's just see if we can see where he goes. And through that, as you read in the story, they ultimately get into the very courtyard of the high priest where Jesus is inside the house being interrogated and beaten and spat on and they get into the courtyard. And it's in this courtyard that Peter undergoes the very challenge that Jesus had warned about. Let's see it in John 18, verse 17. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? This lady asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Verse 25, meanwhile... Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him again, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. You know, we see so clearly in the story that while Jesus completely embraced his identity and the behavior that followed, Peter, as Jesus does that, Peter tends to avoid his identity. It's like he doesn't really want to be identified with Jesus, right? And what happens as a result is he denies Jesus. His behavior follows that. He says, no, I don't want to be identified with him. I read a good summary about Peter and about this very part, and it said this. What happened to Peter is this. He boasted too loudly. He prayed too little and slept too much. He acted too fast and he followed from too far. I don't want to get into all of those right now, but maybe you want to think about that this week with you. Are you too quick and too loud to boast of your own ability to survive in this world without God? Are you acting too fast? I've thought a bit about that praying too little and sleeping too much one as I've been preparing. You know, I don't know about you, but I, I find in life that you can get so physically drained, can't you? You know, all the stuff of life, the work, the family, the study, whatever it might be, health, relationship issues, and it can become so physically tiring sometimes just to get up and get on with the next day. And at times like that, the tendency that I find is, oh, I've just got to go to bed. I've just got to relax. I've just got to sleep. And while sleep is important, I think sometimes we actually miss that actually what we should be doing is not just looking for physical sustenance, but spiritual sustenance. You know, there's times when Jesus would be speaking all day to thousands of people. He was exhausted, but he didn't sleep. He went up on a hill and he prayed all night. And I look at that and I think, how did he do that? Wouldn't he have been physically tired? I'm sure he was. But what he realized is that was what was the most important thing was being spiritually sustained, spiritually nourished. And Jesus warned Peter, Peter, and he said to his disciples, pray, pray, pray. You're about to go through a time of testing. Don't sleep. Pray. You're tired, but pray. 
And what happened? They all fell asleep. While Jesus is there literally sweating drops of blood, we read in the scriptures, the disciples are snoring. He tries to wake them up multiple times. They keep falling back to sleep. He prayed too little and he slept too much. And the fourth one, he followed from too far. And I want to just focus on this for a second. Because I think this is so pivotal to understanding the difference between Jesus and Peter. You see, we've got to give it to Peter and to John that at least they followed Jesus, right? At least they went into the courtyard. They didn't completely abandon him like the other disciples did. At least they tried to see where he'd gone. But the problem is, Peter only ever followed at a distance. You see, Peter got close enough to see what was happening, but he stayed far enough away hoping hoping that no one would suspect he was a disciple of Jesus. He got close enough to see what was happening, but far enough away that no one would suspect that he was one of those followers of this crazy man. And I wonder today if there's people in here just like Peter. Maybe you followed Jesus for many years, but only ever from a distance. You go to church, maybe. Read the Bible. You may even pray every now and again, but on Monday you hope that no one ever suspects that you're one of the disciples of this person that rose from the dead it's a bit crazy isn't it and so you've only ever come into the courtyard you've only ever come so far you might have a personal faith but the problem is it's not just personal it's completely private and you're out in the courtyard and I want to tell you something you know this is not about an introvert extrovert kind of thing I mean, actually, I'm kind of introverted. You might not think so because I get out the front and speak, but I, but I am. I have introvert tendencies. And that's not what I'm talking about on a Monday morning. What I'm talking about is proximity, is getting close enough in your relationship with God that you know Him personally, that you're willing to identify with Him, that your identity is as a child of God, and your behavior on Monday to Saturday is dictated by that. You know, I think for many of us, it's like we come into the courtyard of Christ's home, but we never make it into the kitchen. You know when you have friends or family over, the ones that you really know well? I hope you know your family well, but you know your friends really well as well. You can tell a great friend because they're in your kitchen, and they're the ones that are helping themselves to the cups of tea. They're the ones that are kind of moving through the dirt in the pantry and, and getting the biscuits at the back, you know. They're the ones that you know are really close. It's only the acquaintances, the ones that are the the kind of formal guests, they only kind of make it to the lounge, right? But it's your family and your friends who are the ones who are mucking in in the kitchen. They've moved from that, that lounge or that courtyard right into that intimate place. And I think some of us this morning, we need to move from the courtyard of God's home into his kitchen. We need to relate with God on that type of personal level. We need to identify ourselves as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you ever done that? Are you doing that at this time in your life? You see, I want you to ask yourself this morning, have you ever accepted that the cross is not just some abstract moment in history, but that the cross is for you? That Jesus died as a Passover lamb for you? Not for everyone else. Yes, he did, but he did it for you. Has that become real for you? 
because today it can. You might say to me, but James, you don't know my history. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've said or not said. You don't know me, James. How could God ever accept me into his kitchen, into those intimate places? How could he accept me as one of his children? You know, the main reason the story of Peter is in all four accounts in the Bible of Jesus' death and resurrection, the reason that that story is in there four times of Peter denying Christ is not so we can all stand here a couple of thousand years later and say, he was a real bad dude. I mean, he walked with Jesus for three years. He ate with him every day. They'd sleep in the same houses. They'd go everywhere together. And he denied Jesus? It's not for us to say that. Because you see, in a couple of chapters' time, Jesus meets Peter again, and he reinstates him to that position of friend, of closest friend. And the reason that this story is in here four times is because if Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, can deny him at his greatest moment of need and still be reconciled to Jesus, then so can you. That's why the story's there. So can you. There's nothing you can do that can separate you from the love of God. He loves you and he wants you to accept that love this morning. You see, even back in the house of the high priest, we see the identity of Jesus shining through in his behavior. Luke chapter 22 gives us another perspective on this and it says this, Just as Peter was speaking, the rooster crowed. And look at this, Jesus turned and looked straight at Peter. The rooster crows. Peter has denied Jesus three times and then Peter looks straight at him. And Jesus looks straight at him. And it says, Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Wherever Jesus was in the house of the high priest, he manages to look through a window or a door and right through that little gap is Peter. And he looks straight into his face. And the face of Jesus that Peter sees is one that is already battered, has already been spat upon. But the word that Luke uses here to describe the look that Jesus gives is not an accusing glare. It's not a look of condemnation. It's this fixed look. It's a tender look. And it pierces right into the heart of Peter. And Jesus didn't look with disgust on Peter. He looks on him with love. And the writer Matthew tells us that Peter remembered. So he went out and he wept bitterly. What did Peter remember? I think he remembered what Jesus said was going to happen. But I think he also remembered who he was. He remembered who he was. A disciple, a follower of Jesus. And he had just let him down at this moment of greatest need. But he realizes that in that one look from Jesus, that Jesus still wasn't condemning. He was loving. And no matter what he had done, Jesus would accept him. Jesus would accept him as his child. You know, Peter's identity or his lack of understanding of his identity was influencing his behavior. And your identity this morning is influencing your behavior. Because identity influences everything. It influences how you live today. It influences how you love people. 
It influences how you view your sexuality. It influences how you spend your money. It influences how you forgive those who have wronged you. It influences how you do your job. And listen to this. Your identity in Jesus influences how and where you're going to spend eternity. Jesus was very clear about this. He said there's two places that you're going to spend eternity. You're either going to spend eternity with him, and he calls that heaven, or without him, and he calls that hell. It's not me saying that. It's Jesus. Your identity influences everything. And you know, you can spend the rest of your life focusing on your behavior, trying to make yourself better, but that's the wrong place to focus. Because behavior follows identity. And if we spend all of our life just trying to be better, trying to be good, we'll never get there. Because your behavior doesn't make you someone. Who you are influences your behavior. Do you get that? So we've got to stop trying to be a better person and start realizing that we are a different person and then allow our behavior to come out of that. But are you a different person? Have you ever come to a point in your life where you have said, Jesus Christ, I need you. I need you to forgive me for all the wrong I've done in my life. I need you to come and live within me. I need you to to be my leader. If you haven't done that, I want to ask you to do that this morning. Because you see, just like the Smith family, (laughs) we need to stop trying to behave and remember who we are. That we were created to be children of the living God. And only Jesus can give you that identity. Only Jesus today can touch your life no matter what you've done and can accept you for who you are. I want to finish with a story. I'm sure many of us in this room have heard of Billy Graham that American evangelist who died the last couple of weeks at the age of 99. And I watched his funeral delayed, but I streamed it with Nikki. And in that funeral, one of his daughters, Ruth, told a story about her life. And her life was very, to cut it right down, it was this. She had grown up as this daughter of this man of God who was known all over the world. It must have been incredible pressure for her. And she was married to a man and after 21 years that marriage ended in divorce and she came out of that feeling of failure she came out of that feeling that that just her life had been a disaster and straight after that very soon afterwards she met another man and she said I went into this dating relationship with this man and it was going fast and furious was her words and she said all of her children and her father Billy Graham and her mother were saying to her, please just slow down, please, you know, please just take some time here. You don't even know this guy. But she said in her own words, she said, I didn't care. I was just running away from God. She said, I was living a life of sin and I was not following God's way. And so she said, I quickly married that man. And she said, within 24 hours of marrying that man, I know and I'd made a terrible mistake. Five weeks later, she ran away from him for her own safety. And she called up her parents and said, I've got to come home. And she said, I was thinking to myself, you know, how can I go home? What are my parents going to think? They've told me not to do this. What are they going to think when I arrive? You know, are they going to accept me? What it's going to be like? She had to drive for two days to get to her father's home. And she said, as I got there and I drove up this very long driveway as it is where Billy Graham lived up in the hills, she said, I came around this final corner and there was my house. And on the porch of my house, My father was standing there waiting for me. 
And she said, he just came up to the door and as I got out, he just wrapped me in his arms and welcomed me home. Unconditional love. Nothing that she could have done that would take away her father's love. And there's nothing that you can do that will take away your father's love. But have you ever received it? Have you ever said, Jesus, I give you my life? He wants you to do that now. Could we pray for a minute? Let's just shut our eyes. Lord Jesus, you were so clear of who you were. And out of that clarity, Lord, you lived a life that means that today we can have new life. We can come to become a child of God. And Lord, right now, I just want to pray that for anyone in this room that has never come to know you. And Lord, maybe there's people here that feel like right now they're just in the courtyard, Lord, and they've never moved in to the intimate place of your home and really come to know you. I pray for them too. And I just pray right now that you would help every person in this room to be clear about who they are. Just right now, while our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, I want to give you an opportunity. If you're here today and you don't know this Jesus and you want to know him and you want to be sure of your identity, you want to be sure that if you were to die today, you know that you are a child of God, then I just want to pray for you. And if that's you, just so I know who it is I'm praying for, would you just raise your hand quickly so I can see? And I want to pray for you this morning that you would come to know Jesus. Is there anyone here? So just look across. Yep, cool. Anyone else? Don't miss this chance. He loves you. One last moment, just as I look across this room. I want to pray for the person who just put their hand up. And I just want to, I want to invite all of us right now to just thank God for what he has done for us in sending his son. And this morning, if it's you and you're saying, I want to give my life to Jesus, you follow me in this simple prayer. And this is a life-changing prayer. So you just follow me as I pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love me. I thank you that you died for me. And I ask you this morning to come into my life, to forgive me for all the wrong I've done, and to make me a child of God. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand, and I think we have something to worship God for, don't you? That we are, if you are this morning a child of God, we have something to worship God for. That he allowed his identity to be lived out to the point of the cross. So why don't we stand and let's worship as Josh and Sarah lead us. I'm no longer a slave to fear. Oh, I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. Oh, I am a child.
Yeah. 